I'm Dr. Ashley Mytek, and you are? Dr. Jim Lowe. And today we are going to talk about the very scary and very fatal rabies virus. Welcome to the Round Bar. topic because we recently had a death in Illinois that we haven't seen in decades. I think it was 1954 since the last human died of rabies in the U.S. And that was a little bit scary and shocking. I don't know if you saw those headlines. And um, that's a disease we deal with a lot in veterinary medicine. We don't see it a lot, but we certainly deal with the vaccine. Do you want to talk about the case? What happened to that guy? Yeah, so it's um, so rabies is a horrible viral disease that uh, causes neurologic symptoms. It infects actually the brain, infects nervous tissue, and it was a what we might think of as a disease of the past because it's one hundred percent preventable today. And how is it preventable? So we can vaccinate, and we primarily vaccinate dogs. Dogs transmit it to humans, uh, but wildlife are also a reservoir, in particular case bats, and so that's what happened in this case. But um, we don't see rabies in the U.S. because we have a highly vaccinated population. And so the, what apparently has occurred here, at least in the news reports, we weren't involved directly, but news reports say that uh, this gentleman had apparently some bats living in his house, which, believe it or not, is not that uncommon. Uh, bats can live in, in, in populated communities. So this, is, this does happen, and this is a potential source uh, of rabies, but in other diseases. So the guy had bats in his house. And he got bit by a bat. Um, And then he refused the post-exposure prophylaxis, which is actually another round of vaccination, which would have protected him. Rabies doesn't grow that fast. And so we've got really great protection, uh, either pre-exposure, which you and I are both vaccinated as veterinarians. We got vaccinated, but against rabies. Uh, But if you get bitten, then they can do post-exposure prophylaxis and immunize you and and actually keep you from getting the disease. And so this chap apparently chose not to take the prophylaxis. And why don't we, we talk about core vaccines in dogs and cats. I don't know if you phrase it the same way in cattle and pigs or... Well, no, it's a bit different, but the same idea. Yeah. And then in kids, right, we have certain vaccines that we just essentially say... MMR and, and DPT, right? And so um, so we think about, right, yeah, measles, mumps, and rubella, and diphtheria, um, and tetanus. Um, Wait, are you a pediatrician? <laughs> no. But when you do infectious disease for a living, you think about these things oh, okay, a lot, right? Okay. So why don't we vaccinate kids for rabies? So we vaccinate dogs. So let's go back one step. So rabies itself, natural reservoir is probably bats, we think. Um, as in coronaviruses and some other things. So bats are an interesting Why thing. Why are the bats always the ones I, that I, we blame? I don't know. Uh, we do know, right? So it is this habit of them living near people. Okay. That um, they tend to, right? It gives them, when we think about infectious disease, it's it's exposure to susceptibles. And so uh, because bats are not scared to live with people, they probably are blamed for more things or actually create more things than what those that want to go live in the wild and scared of people. So um, you've got uh, bats that are infected, and then um, they can transmit the virus primarily through saliva. But dogs are the other reservoir. And so canines, not domestic dogs, all canines, can be infected. 
And so we have for a really long time um, vaccinated dogs against rabies. And it's, it's one of the few vaccines in veterinary medicine that's legally mandated. In the interesting bit, that's not vaccinated, that's not mandated by the veterinary authorities, people I work with every day. It's actually veterinary uh, mandated by public health. Because it protects people. It's all about protecting people. It's not about the dog. It's about humans. So it's a zoonotic disease. It's a transmissible to humans disease. And so we vaccinate dogs to protect people. So we can vaccinate people, but because the disease is so rare, the vaccination is relatively hard, right? We had to have three rounds of vaccine. If you all thought the COVID vaccine sucked, you haven't had rabies vaccine. I mean, it's the third dose of rabies vaccine can be pretty rough for a lot of people. It's you really get a fever and, and are sick afterwards. But compared to dying, it was not a not a particularly complicated choice for me to get rabies vaccine a long time ago. And the immunity appears to be lifelong, right? I'm, I don't know when the last time you had your titer check, but mine was still as good as it was the day yeah, I got vaccinated. So it's, um, you know, it's an interesting thing that, right, that vaccine protects, but we don't give it to people because it's just a rare disease in the United States. I can't imagine we have anybody die from rabies routinely anymore because of that. Right. And it's one of those viruses where we can't diagnose it off of a blood test, which we're so used to that, or off of a nasal swab, like a lot of people are, are comfortable with now with COVID, why do you have to be dead before we can officially diagnose you with rabies? That defeats the purpose of diagnosis before treatment, right? Well, unless you're a pathologist. You know. <laughs> uh, but um, it's because the virus only lives in in nervous tissue and neural tissue. So it's lives in brain cells. That's where it really likes to live. And so it's pretty hard to sample the brain when you're alive. Well, you can sample the brain if you're alive, but then you're not alive anymore. So it's, <laughs> and so that's one of the challenges. And we deal with that a lot with right of infectious diseases. Can we get a sample that actually reflects uh, the infectious status of the of the host, or in our case, the animal? So we deal a lot with that with cow diseases, Yoni's disease. The virus is hidden, mycoplasma in pigs. Johnny's uh, disease. Yeah, Johnny's disease, yes. Um, but uh, there's a lot of diseases like that. And then the big other disease we worry about that you have to actually have brain tissue. So Peony's disease is a disease of the intestine, but it's in the lymph nodes. And without actually having the intestine out, it's kind of hard to get samples and um, samples aren't very good. But the other big one we deal with, which is very much um, has the same problem as rabies and affects brain tissue, is the transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, so mad cow disease, uh, with the one everyone would know about BSE. But then we have a similar disease in sheep called scrapie, uh, and um, a deer in sheep called chronic wasting disease, so CWD. So all of those are TSEs. They're pyrons or pyrons, or however you pronounce that word. So they're not a virus, but again, it's a disease that's only in the brain, and the only way I can diagnose that. So it's is as advanced as we have gotten uh, with all of our fancy tests. If I can't get the sample out of the creature and get it to the lab, um, I still can't get a diagnosis. And unfortunately, rabies, the TSEs, uh, you know, mad cow, the only way we diagnose that is post-mortality. And so that really presents some significant challenges for control because I can't test living populations to know where the virus is at. Right. And it seems like the takeaway from this case is that it's unfortunately a good reminder that if you are ever exposed to a bat or bitten by a bat, if you can't catch the bat, 
and send it off to be tested and show it doesn't have rabies, you probably are going to have to undergo the post-exposure series, right? Yeah. Um, because once you're symptomatic, I didn't remember much from virology, but once you're symptomatic with rabies, it's kind of like a no bueno. You're probably not going to make it. Um, and then I remember the other thing that was interesting was that the closer your bit, closer the bite is to the brain, the more quickly you become symptomatic, the more quickly you die. Just, yeah, less trans, less time of transmission to move up the nerves into the brain. You it has know? to crawl into the Get up to the noggin. Yep. Very interesting. So the interesting bit about rabies to me is, so I said this is completely preventable in the U.S. That's not the case in the rest of the world. I think I read something that there are over 55,000 rabies deaths a year. Of course, the vast majority of those happen not in the United States, but it's still a really significant disease outside of our country, which we probably most of us don't think about. No, and it's because we don't, they don't have good dog vaccination program. So there's, you know, a lot of parts of the world, there's a lot of feral dogs. Those dogs aren't vaccinated. Domestic dogs, I think globally are pretty well vaccinated, but there are a lot of unowned or feral type dogs and, you know, a lot of parts of the world and those dogs are not vaccinated as they're not here in the U.S. We just tend not to have as many. Um, and so that unvaccinated population really serves as a reservoir of rabies virus. And so there's continuous circulation of rabies in those, in those areas. Um, and so as you get dog bites with people, you end up with, again, rabies infections. And so it's a, it's, you know, it's one of the quote unquote modern marvels of the West. You know, they don't see it in Western Europe. We don't see it here in the U S you know, Canada, Mexico, but the rest of the world that becomes a significant problem is those dog populations are unvaccinated and now they can transmit it to each other and you end up with a long-term reservoir of disease. And you were telling me a little while ago about potentially dogs coming into the country. Oh uh, yeah. Back to African swine fever. Yes. Yeah, so this is some things you stumble across in life, right? And then you start start to connect the dots. So when we started, so we're very worried about African swine fever. And if you've seen any of the news, it's rampant endemic in Eastern Europe and in China. And the big problem with ASF is, is that it's terminal for pigs, but because it's a regulated disease, we can't export. So if you have ASF, we probably can't export pig, pig meat out of this country. Can you uh, still eat it? Yeah, it's actually perfectly fine to eat. But one of the interesting bits about African swine fever is, is that it's the muscle that carries the virus. And so the meat itself can be contaminated. It can be a source of transmission. So we work really hard not to let those pigs into the food supply chain, not because it's not safe, but because we don't want to transmit the virus anymore because the, the pig muscle itself can transmit. It. And that's what we see happening in other parts of the world. They butcher a pig that's infected. They have sausage the virus lives in even dry sausage for long periods of time. They go to their friends at the neighboring village. They share the sausage. The sausage gets thrown out and it gets eaten by wild pigs in the area. And they transmit the virus to the next spot. So this meat transmission with ASF is a big deal. That's neither here nor there for the point of this podcast. However, comma, is we've been working on African swine fever uh, as a swine community. We've had a, some really, really interesting conversations. Now, meat can carry it, and in a lot of foreign countries, dogs would be eating meat, not dog food. They would eat raw meat or carcasses as animals die. Well, come to find out, there's a huge number of dogs imported into this country 
um, as rescue dogs, and to put that in quotes. So there are organizations who are, quote, quote, rescuing dogs from China and Eastern Europe and other places and importing to this country. So that turned up to be a huge issue for us because animals that have eaten infected meat can actually shed ASF for a long period of time, which means that the dog could be infectious for African swine fever and potentially infect pigs if it gets around pigs. And you say, well, gee, many Jim, they're not importing the dogs to the pig farm, which is true. Yes, that's exactly what was in my brain. Except potbelly pigs are, are susceptible. That's your favorite type not, of pig, though. We're not talking about that here. You just want me to anesthetize them so you can paint their nails, their nails purple. That's never happened. <laughs> but so these potbellied pigs, right? If you go back and look at rescue organizations, there's a lot of potbellied pigs and rescue organizations. These safe rescue organizations are taking in high numbers of foreign dogs. It doesn't matter if we have a potbellied pig infected or a commercial pig infected in the United States that has the same consequences for exports from business continuity for the U.S. pig production. Mm, you have to go back for a second. Help me make the connection between if a potbellied pig gets ASF and what so that means. So any, for... any detection of African swine fever in the United States means that they will close our borders to exports. Even if it's in a potbellied pig? They don't care it's in a pig. So until we can prove that it's eradicated, per OIE, the Organization for World Organization for Animal Health, which is the animal version of the WHO, per the trade rules that we've all agreed to, positive countries can export it. So a positive test equals... No export. No export. For the entire, for the entire country, country. And for how long? Till you prove it's eradicated. How do you prove it's eradicated? You have to have no positive test. And there's a whole bunch of... that's a We could have a four-hour podcast on what are we doing for preparedness. As long as I can have my almond milk latte or like but three during those. It might take six. <laughs> but you get the point that we have all these goofy things. And so as we've been talking in, in our state vet here in Illinois, we're just having a chat one day and he said, ah, you know how many dogs come into the into, into Chicago that are quote, quote, rescue no dogs? No hair, yeah. No hair. And normally when animals, and we import animals into O'Hare all the time, that's one of the international import locations. But when a horse shows up, there's a quarantine procedure for that horse and it goes to a quarantine barn and we know where the horse is at. And if a pig shows up in China, which or in Chicago, which we don't do, we do import some cows, they go to a quarantine facility and we know where they're at. These dogs are showing up in Minnesota. They were going to quarantine them in Minnesota. So that's not how... You control and, infectious disease. And it's not how animal quarantine rules work. And so, right, they can't cross state lines. States still have a lot of purview over that. Uh, USDA has purview because it's an international importation. So that's what started raising the conversation. So this is rolling around in my head. First of all, I didn't realize how many thousand. This is in the thousands of dogs per year coming in um, from places like China. A lot of ASF. And then here in the last couple of weeks, I think right before the, the, the human case of rabies, there was a group of dogs imported, and I forget which country it came from. There's a positive rabies dog in that importation. And so then they ended up having to euthanize the whole importation. Back to your question about how do you test for this. Right. They couldn't test the rest of them. They'd all been exposed. Nobody had any idea what the um, vaccination status was on these dogs. And so you start looking at these models, right, and you say... Yeah, okay, rabies isn't a big deal here in the U.S., but we've got this other whole bit of 
exposure. It's just the fascinating part of infectious disease to me, right? Like there's just stuff going on and how do these connections fit together and how did dogs from China fit into ASF transmission risk? And I mean, but then you stop and you look at this and you say, we may have a way bigger issue than African swine fever, which is a bit of a pig problem. But if dogs are being brought in and they're rabies positive and we don't know their vaccine status, God, you'd hate to see one of those go to some family, right? And turn up rabies positive well, a week later. And That's what I was going to say. I think we've all done veterinary medicine long enough where we've all had cases that have ended up being rabies positive that we didn't expect were going to have rabies or rabies suspects. And the risk to human personnel, right? Or I, I haven't personally had one, but of course everybody has a friend who has a friend who you had a puppy dropped off at your clinic and it had neurologic signs and everybody loved on the puppy. And then, oh my gosh, it had a seizure and you find out it had, it was rabies positive and, you know, it wasn't vaccinated or whatever. But I would imagine all those people that handled that dog at O'Hare, or like you said, if it goes to a family, they're all going to have to have that post-exposure sequence, which isn't fun and isn't cheap. So No, and think about it. We've got, uh, as you say, the people at O'Hare, that includes the baggage handlers, that include, right? right. And so it's, um, there's just always a lot of stuff that happens that we don't know about. And I think it's this whole rabies case in the Chicago land area is just a good reminder, right? That um, A, listening to uh, medical advice when they say maybe you should do this is A, a good idea. And two, for me, it's when, if you think something's gone away, i.e. rabies, rabies is just not on my radar screen. You know, is a public health concern, is a, you know, I'm, I'm worried about influenza from a public health concern. I'm not worried about rabies. But yeah, you start putting the pieces back together. Maybe it's not as um, gone as we would like to think it is because the world's pretty interconnected and uh, what goes on in China or what goes on in, in Lithuania might matter. Right. And I think we should mention that we're on the one, two, I can count. We're on the second floor of the veterinary college. And on the first floor is our diagnostic lab, which does a lot of rabies testing, from what I understand. So it's still out there in the world, right? Even in our community, I'm sure there's a bat out there somewhere with rabies, right? So. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think as we start to wrap this up, right, you, everybody, there's always infectious disease is really cool because it's always different. It's always something new. And when you think, you know, you don't. And then, um, mother nature always outsmarts us or that's the, mother virus always outsmarts. Yeah. I think us. that's the other take home, right? That every time we turn around, when you think you've got it knocked and you let your guard down, um, because rabies theoretically, I was pretty convinced mentally, ah, this one's solved. Uh, don't need to worry about it. Um, and um, yet here we go. And so um, cannot forget that old things are rare back if we uh, if we don't maintain our vigilance. That is good advice. So anybody out there, don't play with wild bats. If you get bit by one or I guess really any wild mammal, um, go talk to your doctor. That's correct. And I think with that, that is a wrap. Thank you, Dr. Lowe. Thank you, Dr. Mitek. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening and we'd love to hear from you too. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Round Barn one We may even share your comments on our next show. 
Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing, we also offer a wide range of learning opportunities for folks who work with livestock and veterinarians too. You can learn more at online.vetmed.illinois.edu. See you soon.